Kunz. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Welcome everyone to the podcast. I'm extremely delighted to welcome our next guest, Swami Vijayan. He is a serial entrepreneur having run three companies as founder and CEO with deep experience bringing interdisciplinary technologies to the market. After his PhD in physics from the University of Pennsylvania, he started his professional career working across optics, molecular biology, nanofabrication, and computational analysis, at the various genomics companies he's been involved in. And eventually he managed research on novel sequencing technologies at Illumina as the nanobiology group leader. He started his first company, Omniome, to simplify instrumentation around DNA sequencing. And then he started Plexium to lead the way in the rational design and discovery of monovalent protein degraders across a wide range of modalities. His most current venture is Zafrin's, which is building novel tools that allow us to connect the functional behavior of millions of individual cells to their underlying molecular profile. So welcome, Swami. We're delighted to have you on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, the one you know word that just kind of weaves through everything that I just described in terms of your bio and background is interdisciplinary. Uh, I noticed that you know, you've worked at the interface of so many different areas of research and science. And I just wonder, you know, is that an area where you find particularly attractive for novel innovation? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's perhaps something I stumbled into. I mean, I did my PhD in theoretical physics, but my first job was in biotechnology modeling DNA. So the immediate application of physics and, and kind of fundamental physics principles to biology. Um, and then, I, I mean, I, I was so fascinated by it, I just dove into it and, and picked up quite a number of biology skills at my first job. Um, just the perspective that uh, uh, different disciplines bring to a problem and being able to harness that to solve a problem more efficiently, elegantly, simply, um, I just think there's tremendous potential there. I continue to be fascinated by that intersection of ideas and opportunities. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not just me. I mean, a lot of people are starting to realize is the whole tech bio community and the tech bio field is emerging from a similar realization. Absolutely. And I also think, too, what's interesting about that is um, you're interfacing with different types of people that represent those fields of interest as well. So not only do you have the diversity of the disciplines, but the diversity of the people behind those um, research endeavors, I would imagine also augurs well for just unique ideas and insights that lead to new findings. Yeah, and, and unique challenges as well. I mean, just as you mentioned, there's different uh, people uh, from different disciplines kind of have different personalities, if you will. So engineers come in with a very defined way of doing things. Uh, they like everything to be charted out. And you know, engineers are awesome at, at, at kind of solving a specific um, plan that you provide them. And we have 
biologists who are used to tinkering and experimenting and you have chemists who are used to doing things a certain different way and getting the personalities and perspectives aligned um, is, is, a, is a unique challenge. But if you can overcome that, um, the opportunity is just enormous at this interface. Yeah, I would imagine even just the, the language and the jargon between each of the fields is somewhat of a, you know, a, a translational piece of, you know, making, you know, kind of a, a team and a, and a, uh, a technology where you're kind of leveraging all those fields to, to work in unison together. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's been it's been a privilege of my career so far, and uh, I'm looking forward to kind of unraveling more opportunities and mysteries um, using this interface. I'm curious what got you into physics in the first place. So you know, you, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about your early yearnings to get involved in that field, and then again, we're coming full circle and kind of looking at the way bio is being shaped by physics today, you know, the tech bio uh, revolution that you yeah. just mentioned. But if you could yeah. just walk back in time and say, to describe. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I haven't thought about it in a long time. Um, two reasons, I mean, my father is an electrical engineer, so just watching him do stuff. Uh, but physics did not really occur to me um, until um, high school where I had an awesome physics teacher. So he basically handed me the most physics, the most complex physics book I've ever seen, he handed it to me and said, no, read this, you'll be inspired. So just having somebody trust me to understand complex physics and having some background at home and, and having a teacher who inspired uh, a, a passion for physics is basically what set me off. Um, I, I went to the best schools in India um, and again, being exposed to know the best teachers and, and, and the cutting edge of thought in this field. Um, I decided I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. I came to the US to do theoretical physics um, and realized pretty soon that in India, uh, where I had, was born and raised, um, being a physicist, thinking about foundational problems is afforded a different type of um, respect, gravitas, value than in America, which is more application oriented. And so it was a little bit of a mental reset for me. So did I want to study physics because I wanted pe people to think I'm cool? Or did I want to study physics because I thought it was interesting and useful? Um, I kind of started realizing I want to do useful things with my life rather than just do cool stuff. So in graduate school, I started leaning more towards, you know, is there something I can do experimentally? Can I add to my experimental skills? So that's kind of what got me into more polymer science and applied physics, still theoretical, but quite a bit of experiments involved. Um, and like you mentioned, my first job was in modeling DNA as a polymer. So DNA, people think of it as a biomolecule or a biochemical object. And at the first job at BioNanogenomics, um, I had an opportunity to think of DNA as a biophysical object, as a pure polymer, and with the mechanical properties of the polymer. And modeling it, confining it, messing around with it, um, that's how I started got, got it getting interested in biology and being exposed to biology um, and, and you know, genomics and, and um, diagnostics. That's awesome. And, you know, I would, I would uh, say that you stayed cool on the way, too. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's pretty yeah. cool. Well, you know, maybe jumping into your entrepreneurial journey a little bit here, too. I mean, you know, you've founded and been very successful as a serial entrepreneur, um, you know, in, in three companies, you know, um, and I'd like to dig in deeper around, you know, your latest venture in just a few minutes. But before we get there, are any of these companies related or connected in some way? And kind of maybe you could just weave a little bit of the pathway from, um, you know, going from um, Omnium to Plexium and then now Zafferin's. What, what has yeah. that been like and how are they, if at all, are they connected? Yeah, I, I can I can walk through that. So <clears throat> the, the common theme is, again, 
my unique perspective allows me to see things slightly differently um, than most people. So even at my very first job, I was jumping in and doing stuff, doing analysis, doing experiments, um, which a traditional biologist wouldn't consider um, or wouldn't conceive of doing it. So, and I I've kind of have an entrepreneurial bent. So being able to see things in a new way and being able to do things with my own hands, um, just allowed me um, to do certain things um, that in the end eventually ended up being successful. So, uh, I mean, I, I worked at a, a couple of startups after my graduate school, eventually ended up at Illumina, um, where I was deeply, deeply exposed to um, interdisciplinary technologies in diagnostics and genomics. And um, again, it became obvious to me that I would be most happy um, in a, in a kind of entrepreneurial setting where I didn't have to go through many hierarchies, many levels of approvals, because I could just see things that were kind of novel and unique that I could actually implement. And I just wanted a space where I could just go and try that and, and demonstrate its value. So the first company, Omnium, was um, an attempt to build a biosensor around a new kind of sensing platform called Plasmonics. So I left Illuminate to start a Plasmonics company, which is basically a really inexpensive, uh, you could stick it onto a cell phone camera and do sensing of, of uh, molecules interacting and quickly become obvious that it could be used as a sequencer. So conventionally sequencers are big gigantic instruments with complex optics, high resolution, high precision optics. And um, it, it, it occurred to me that you could simplify it tremendously on a, on a couple of dollar uh, consumable if you could use a label-free plasmonic sensing. So, and that required us to invent a new sequencing method because conventionally sequencing is meant to be run on high precision, high resolution optical instruments. And, and we were trying to run it on really, really inexpensive label-free sensors. So again, that hadn't been invented before. It wasn't a method that was um, considered feasible. So, but we actually got it working fairly soon, very quickly. Um, because we had such an inexpensive system, we could run lots and lots of experiments um, to actually get a sequencing method that works. Um, it involved innovations in chemistry, in enzymology, in nanofabrication. Um, and, and in the end, we ended up making a really portable sequencer um, and that was underwritten by you know, some, some, some grants and some uh, revenue. Um, so and, and and venture capital and again as we were developing this it was also obvious that this could be equivalent to illumina it doesn't have to be um, confined to the cheap uh, instrument i mean we had a really really inexpensive instrument really really inexpensive sequencing technology that could scale up and take on illumina type of throughput and investors got really excited about the higher throughput taking on Illumina type of business model. But I kind of remained interested in this intersection of engineering, uh, low cost, democratized, personalized sequencing. So I moved on from Omnium to explore kind of my passions. And at that time, um, I had also realized that I had always thought diagnostics and sequencing was the be all and end all of healthcare. That if you sequence something, if you diagnose something, there was always a cure. Um, but I realized building Omnium that there was not always a drug, and to make a drug still cost a couple of billion dollars in 20 years uh, to get to market. So I wanted to turn my attention towards, again, could I use my interdisciplinary background, which I've gotten more confident at that time on deploying these skills, um, could could I use this type of background and, and the teams I was able to build at this interface um, to make a dent in drug discovery? So Plexium was an attempt to use my 
background in genomics and interdisciplinary technologies to build tools for drug discovery. So um, traditionally, drug discovery is done in 96 whole plates. You do 96 experiments at a time, and you have a robot that does lots and lots of those 96 Plex experiments. At Plexium, we decided to do 150,000 to 1 million experiments at a time. So we basically made a new chip uh, that was really, really small wells in which you could do 150,000 experiments in one shot, uh, up to a million experiments in one shot. And to accommodate this type of scale, you had to figure out how to do chemistry at high throughput because we could do a lot of experiments and you can't just, you know, we need to make chemistry really inexpensive. The, the process of making compounds inexpensive to keep up with the throughput at which you can do the experiments. So we also figured out a way to make really inexpensive compounds. Um, you could make 100,000 to a million compounds in a month. Um, or fairly inexpensively, using a technique called DNA encoded libraries. Again, that's where my background in genomics came in. So every compound had a DNA tag on it, and sequencing the DNA tag would tell you what the compound is. If I just pan out for a minute for our audience too, so you know what you're describing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the the screening process. So, you know, when you're going after a new drug at the very front end of that journey. Um, scientists are trying to identify a new molecule or, or a new material that uh, could be screened. Uh, and in using your technology, you could, you could screen millions of compounds across millions of different types of uh, targets in a very short period of time so that you can, re you can really speed up the, the uh, time it takes to identify a molecule that has very promising characteristics that you would then take into further preclinical development, kind of animal studies, and then later into human clinical studies. So rather than just kind of finding a needle in a haystack, your technology and others like it that even predated it that were maybe inferior, the whole goal is to select a, a molecule or a drug or a series of drugs that could have greater chance of making it kind of uh, all the way through the, the human clinical trial process and you've you sped it up just massively in a, in a, in a in a you know a, a, a very revolutionized um, technology package do I have that right is that fair to characterize it that way that is correct yeah that, that's absolutely correct um, so I mean there have been aspects of it people have been developing for a while um, people can make lots and lots of compounds but you can't do cell-based experiments with them so we basically figured out a way to make lots and lots of compounds but do experiments in cells when you do experiments on cells you get higher content, more relevant information, because you know the compound gets into the cell, it doesn't kill the cell, and it has therapeutic um, response uh, in the cell. So that's kind of what we innovated at Plexium. Um, and, but we identified as a pharmaceutical company. It was, it was a massive learning opportunity for me, or our experience, um, because we did not go out as a, as a technology company. We went out as a pharmaceutical company, as a therapeutics company. And I'm, I'm grateful that uh, investors kind of took me seriously. I, I have no background. I mean, at that point, I had no background in therapeutics. Um, but we actually went out with the therapeutic hypothesis um, around an area called protein degradation. So rather than pitch the company as a high-throughput drug discovery platform, we pitched the company as a protein degradation. So again, Usually drugs, you try and bind the drug to a protein, um, but we were hypothesizing that rather than simply bind, um, can only bind in select locations on the protein where binding a, a small molecule would interfere with its functions. We just wanted to cause a degradation. So it could bind anywhere on the protein. Um, if it still can trigger degradation of the protein, it would be therapeutically beneficial. So um, that, that was fairly successful. We actually found some molecules and, and it's advancing more as a traditional pharmaceutical company at this point. Um, and, and I kind of building Plexium, building a therapeutics company, I started seeing 
the limitations even even more so. I mean, I had originally observed the limitations in the screening aspects of it, but building, trying to advance uh, molecules forward, uh, it was obvious how little we understand cells. And um, again, it, it is it is such a fascinating subject to study. And today, um, there are lots of technologies to study lots and lots of cells um, using what are called molecular profiling tools. So they're called single cell sequencing, uh, proteomics. So you can get to the molecular details of a cell or you can get to the functional details of cells. So you can actually look at what a cell is doing, how it's proliferating, how it's moving around, how it's responding to a drug. Uh, but you're not able to do both of them at the same time. So you either look at the molecular features of cells at high throughput or you look at the functional features of cells at high throughput, you cannot tell from a single experiment that this particular molecular feature results in this particular functional manifestation. It's not possible to do it today at any scale. I mean, the, the highest scale one is able to do is maybe 5,000, 20,000 cells, which a company called Berkeley Lights does on a, on a fairly expensive instrument. Um, so the, 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 the question that we said to ask at Zafrin's is what happens if you can ask um, for millions and hundreds of millions of cells, if you could look at both the molecular profile of the cell and its functional manifestation at the same time. So um, again, every cell in everybody's body has identical DNA. So there's different amounts of RNA in every cell, uh, and, and that RNA gets translated to different amounts of proteins and different function. So could we look at the RNA changes in every cell and also look at how does it manifest as a function of the cell? And that's what we're trying to do at Zafrin's uh, at massive uh, scale and explore the application that it can unlock. Uh, that's awesome. And, you know, as we've talked a little bit of back and forth around um, this nuanced uh terminology, biotech or tech bio. Can you yeah. break that down for the audience? Kind of your view of, you know, the evolution of, of the bio uh, company, the bio, you know, the, often throw around a lot of different terms, biopharma, you know, um, and, you know, pharma companies. But if you can kind of describe your view on what what's the difference between biotech and tech bio? Yeah, I mean, I can offer my kind of personal uh, viewpoint on that. Um, it, I would call it, where does the hypothesis come from? If it's a biological hypothesis, you're trying to tease apart using technical tools or, or instrumentation, I would call it biotech. So if it's just trying to produce a certain protein, the protein is what is valuable, and you're building tools to make protein production higher. Um, or that's kind of how it's evolved. You're trying to make antibodies, you're trying to make um, you know, specific cell types. Um, all driven by a biological hypothesis. So on the other hand, you can take a technology hypothesis saying, if we can solve you know, using quantum mechanics or, or quantum computation, um, the motion of a protein, then it enables certain biological outcomes, it enables an understanding of biology. So anything computationally oriented, anything engineering, or where the, the thesis starts from having a unique technical capability and the biological insights and the chemical insights that it unlocks, um, I tend to call it tech bio. So it's just where you're coming from. That's it, very, it's very helpful. Yeah, and I think that's it's it's really kind of representative of the way that the fields have moved in parallel in the sense of you know the um, you know the human genome project and our knowledge of genetic sequencing, you know, dating back to the early 2000s to where we stand today and the ability to use that information for, um, again, biological screening, um, you know, diagnostics, uh, understanding, you know, certain disease uh, pathologies and being able to develop better drugs against those 
those genetic targets as well. Um, and we're still at the kind of early stages of that. But what's, I think, accelerated our ability to apply, going back to, you know, your, your, uh, your word uh, earlier, or describing your, yourself and, and applying your scientific knowledge to solving a problem, as we apply computing and the the uh, speed with which and the storage capacity, when we think about, you know, AWS and, you know, uh, high performance computing, you know, sometimes found at the national labs. I know here in Chicago, we talk a lot about Argonne and Fermilab with their high, high performance computing capabilities. University of Chicago has their quantum uh, institute where they're bringing together a lot of these uh, tools and technologies. So in parallel, you've got, you know, um, you know, tremendous discoveries of the uh, biology uh, and and then you've got computational power and the ability to use that those analytical tours tools uh, in silico uh, are, are really that convergence that's really an exciting time I think for for uh, for my bio biomedicine no absolutely um, the where the computation takes our understanding of biology or understanding of uh, biotech, chemistry, or physiology at the next level, is you know, there are only so many biological experiments we are able to do. The bi biology is so complex. I mean, there's 100,000 versions of proteins in a cell, and they're all interacting, they're all kind of um, regulating each other. And there's only so many experiments we can do to understand what is going on in a cell. And But computation, um, but the kind of artificial intelligence and the neural networks, the machine learning capabilities we now have, um, the, the unique perspective that they provide is they can work with incomplete information. Again, the, the connection that we can't see by, by eye, by slow throughput experimentation, um, computation is able to infer insights from there and, and kind of surface it for we can kind of test it and verify it. So that's, the, like you mentioned, the combination of, of the progress in understanding biology and in processing high volumes of information and, and, and earth and kind of surfacing uh, insights from it. Um, and them kind of working in concert, I think is, is going to be truly revolutionary. Uh, agreed. Yeah. And, and maybe if we just kind of fast forward to Zafrin's today and talk a little bit about what you experienced in your first two companies around kind of the way to, to build an enterprise, you know, is, is culture important? If so, why? And what, what's, what are the elements of having good starting foundation kind of as you embark on this next journey with Zafrin's? Um, those are great questions. Um, culture obviously is, is, is key to any enterprise, um, especially when you work at an interdisciplinary environment um, where a, a strong shared values and purpose becomes essential. Because if there's one, if, if one discipline kind of takes over, it becomes one type of company and, and not the company that can extract the insights from all disciplines equally and, and build a compelling product. Um, I, I'd say having the, the initial five to 10 people that, that one hires um, become the foundation for what the shared purpose and values are. Um, and it, it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's you no, know, Learning experience being a learning experience for me as well, um, and um, and and surprisingly, um, having a set of people who have instincts across multiple disciplines becomes key for such a company as well, um, because I I cannot just go and ask an engineer to do something um, if I didn't know what the 
the limitations. I mean, the limitations posed by biology and chemistry need to be conveyed to the engineers. We don't want to make something out of a plastic that would melt when you add the particular chemical reagent on the system. So, so someone or, or, or a few people who can who have instincts in multiple disciplines uh, become very very critical, uh, and and them being uh, sociable, personable. People, so they can talk to biologists, to chemists, to engineers, um, to to extract the, the the value and perspectives and kind of coalesce them becomes critical. Um, I, I don't I don't know how else to answer that. Um, I mean, from my personal perspective, so I think in terms of building a company rather than building a product. So uh, where we have had uh, misalignments in the past is uh, me hiring people or or kind of um, promoting people. Um, who were interested in just a product and you know that's what we're, that's what you're supposed to do and then we go home um, is, is is not how I think about building a company I think in terms of um, a product is absolutely necessary to build a company uh, but the way I think about it especially at these interfacial technologies uh, a platform that can be mined over and over again for greater and greater value uh, is, is important um, and and so people who are thinking in terms of um, extracting more and more value from a platform um, is who I find more valuable uh, for such companies. So I've kind of been more careful about how we build such a team at Safran's. Well, and I bet there's a premium for the individual that is talented at not only their given field of expertise where they you know have spent the bulk of their career but with maybe the subtle art of being able to communicate and interface uh with others that again have different backgrounds with um different tools that they're working with and and if that's the case one thing i am curious about too is as you build a tech bio company of the future what does the infrastructure look like for that type of company and is it different from a a biopharma company when i think of Biopharma, biotech, I think a lot of wet labs, you know, you've got uh, cell and tissue culture hoods, you've got chemistry uh, fume hoods, you mentioned polymers, you're making polymers, so there's a there's a wet lab component uh, to what's going on. But um, I would imagine, you know, that computing is a big part of what you're doing as well. And I just wonder, what does the physical footprint, you know, of Zafrin's look like, or yeah. maybe where is it going? Yeah, and I'll, 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 I'll answer it two ways. One is the people part, and the second is the infrastructure part. So there aren't that many people who are um, who are comfortable at, at, you know, at having instincts or having insights into multiple areas. Um, so I've been lucky in, in, in being able to find such people. Uh, but what I've also learned is you can train people to, to get good at this. So you could take people who are ex experts in biology or engineering or chemistry and simply allow them to make mistakes in the other areas. Um, so getting people early who are motivated uh, early in their careers and um, simply creating an environment where you're allowed to take. I mean, that's how I came up. Uh, I didn't have any biology background. I mean, I can convince most people I'm a good biologist these days because I actually was in the lab trying to do biology and making lots of mistakes. Um, and so. I've found that that works fairly well. Um, so that's kind of one way if people are interested in building uh, a cadre of people who are very good at the inter interface of disciplines is basically letting people try stuff and make mistakes and, and build the instincts for uh, for the other discipline. And you're absolutely right. The infrastructure is is a hassle as well. So every time uh, we've had to move to a new lab, we've actually had to build it out. Um, 
for ourselves. Um, because we do classic biology, cell culture rooms, tissue culture rooms, um, wet labs, uh, but we also had to have lots and lots of chemistry hoods because we do compounds and engineering labs. That's the most difficult part. We need fairly extensive engineering infrastructure because we do you no know, laser cutting, um, fabrication, you no know, making boxes, tools, 3D printing. Um, so again, roughly a third of our labs are engineering, third chemistry and third biology. And you either get biology or biology and chemistry, you rarely get space for engineering. So we've had to build it out ourselves. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And, you know, and as you as you talk about that, you know, maybe you could also delve into a little bit about, you know, your experience as you've built your companies and kind of what have, what are some of the uh, key roadblocks early on that are that you found difficult to overcome, but uh, once overcome have kind of, you know, allowed you to run to a new value, value inflection point. Is there any commonality to uh, initial barriers that get faced kind of in the, you know, first 18 to 24 months of life of a, of a, of a tech bio venture? Um, so the companies I've founded are, have been unique in that they don't have any um, academic pedigree. They were kind of invented um, and developed at the companies. So we were actually inventing these technologies uh, at, the, at the companies I founded. Um, so the, some of the challenges we face were unique to that type of kind of milieu where um, you don't have a lab that you can go to and ask for you no know, history of how this was developed. So again, unique to this perspective, um, we typically have a few different ways of tackling the same problem. So we typically have an engineering approach to solve the problem, a biology approach, a chemistry approach, and we run all of them in parallel. So it, it becomes very important to have dynamic people um, who understand the breadth of the approaches we're taking. Um, again, when we tried to build a new sequencing method, we tried five or six different methods and we found one that works. Um, then we did high throughput drug discovery. We tried five or six different ways to confine the compounds, confine the cells until one, one worked. Um, so again, unique to our kind of way of doing things, um, it's it's figuring out how to try multiple ideas in parallel and and quickly pick one that works. Um, but separately, in, in general, um, the, the early stage challenges for any company is finding the right initial team, and and um, and, and over time. I've also learned not just the technical team, but the supporting infrastructure, the accountants, yeah. the HR people, the finance people. Um, they can your, make your venture backers, uh, yeah, corporate partners, all of those. Absolutely. It made such a huge difference. Um, the less you have to think about you know, facilities, accounting, payroll, benefits, um, the more faster science goes. Yeah, and if you have aligned partners, you know that are in, in, invested in you and are are backing you, um, that really helps you continue to stay nimble, build and scale, and you know advance toward your ultimate vision. Picking the wrong partners can be devastating sometimes, yeah. you know, um, or at least some form of devastation or slowdown. Yeah, absolutely. That makes it challenging, and any any. Um, any roadblock early on can sometimes be insurmountable for the young growing company. And so picking partners, board members, uh, investors, corporate partners, employees, like you've mentioned, yeah. and they're not just scientists, you know, there's the, all different types of folks that need to kind of be behind the company. Um, and, and wrong choices can be made that can be fateful for the overall 
journey of the of the even if the technology is good, even if the aim is uh, well founded in the beginning, and there's a market need, um, you know, there can be barriers like that 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 uh, ultimately you know could have been maybe um, planned around or avoided in, in the beginning. Is what I've found kind of in my own entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, no, is no, that, you know, absolutely. You, yeah. It's hard to teach entrepreneurship, and you can't guarantee success. But there are a lot of things in that first year of life that. Um, you can make the wrong choices. And if you simply are presented the options and perhaps have a greater chance of making the right choices early on, what are, if you could kind of uh, summarize um, some of the upcoming milestones for Zafrin's and a little bit more for the audience, what's the ultimate aim of the company? What, where, where are you hoping to kind of, you know, advance the company to, and what problems are you trying to solve specifically with, with Zafrin's? Yeah. So, um, the, the fact that we don't understand cells today, um, again, our tagline for Zafrin's is the full story of every cell. So look at the molecular features, the molecular profile of a cell, and understand how that translates to the function of the cell. And being able to do this at very large scale, it opens up unique applications. So first of all, simply, there's, there's about you know, 10 billion different T cells in your body. And each T cell responds to a different peptide. Today, we can sequence millions of T cells from every patient, but we don't know which particular T cell responds to which particular cancer antigen, because that's a functional assay. So you can either do a functional assay to see one of the T cells kills a tumor cell, or you can do the sequencing assay, we can identify all the T cells. So what we want to be able to do is sequence all, for example, all the T cells, and, and be able to identify which of these T cells responds to which antigen. So you can actually um, kind of predict um, if a particular tumor type or tumor antigen is presented by the patient that they already have the immune population to, to take care of it, or simply to understand so we can engineer into CAR-Ts or um, engineer T-cells. So that, that's one context where understanding the sequence of a cell and understanding its functional manifestation becomes very, very important. The one area we're currently focused on is drugging how the RNA becomes protein. So we also have the ability to add drugs to our cells. So not only do we look at RNA sequence of cells, how does the RNA sequence change when you add a drug to the cell? So traditionally, when you do drug discovery, you look at um, typically one functional endpoint, like is this particular protein expressed? Is it going up? Is it going down? You don't typically look at what else is going on with the drug. Because we have the ability to both sequence and look at the cell at the same time, not only do we uh, screen for the desired functional phenotype. We also desired for what else might be going on with the cell. So we can actually um, optimize around um, less side effects, more selective or more beneficial um, side effects um, with, the, with the compound. So we are focused on drug discovery at the moment, um, utilizing a deep understanding of both the molecular profile of the cell and the functional state of the cell. And is your business model to um provide that capability, this the screening capability to partners that can kind of screen their molecules against? Are you developing your own molecules? Yeah, we develop our own the, molecules. Yeah, again, I the, see. it takes a special kind of chemistry to modulate RNA and how RNA becomes proteins. So we're building expertise in the chemical kind of estate, and um, we do intend to partner extensively with pharmaceutical companies. Again, the reason this is important is um, all of pharmaceutical drugs today target about 3% of the genome. About 3% of the genome have druggable kind of proteins that you can bind with a small molecule. If you can drug RNA or how RNA becomes proteins, every protein comes from RNA. 
So if you can drug the process of RNA becoming protein, you can pretty much drug every protein in the cell. And that requires novel chemical matter, and it opens up a large target space. So if you're hoping to partner with pharma on providing access to the novel insights and novel capabilities we have, but also have a, a set of molecules that we can build our internal pipeline around over time. Uh, the initial model is to, is to focus on revenues um, and use the revenues to take some risks ourselves into the clinic uh, down the road. I, I, I love the approach. And it, it, it sounded to me also like some of the insights that you would gain through the screening, uh, both on the sequencing and on the functional assays, that you would also be able to help either on your, you know, on your own accord or with partners, explore other types of modalities. Do, do I have that right? So you mentioned like CAR T yeah. and so cell therapies and even maybe gene therapies could. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, that, that's kind of been my dream at every company I've started is to explore, I call this compounding benefits. So again, first of all, you got the right team. If you got the right team working at the tech by interface, there's a lot of interesting things you can do. And then after the team comes the right platform. So if you have a foundational platform uh, that allows you to study cells comprehensively, drug discovery is an application. And simply picking the right cell for a particular application is an application in itself. So finding the right T cell in a patient that responds to their tumor so it can grow and culture the T cell or engineer it and then put it back is an application. And synthetic biology is an application. So uh, if you can engineer, you know, I mean, the general notion of synthetic biology is you make tens of thousands of genetic perturbations and you hope that one of them has a desired functional outcome produce a certain metabolite or protein or so. Um, so we can make that, we can make hundreds of thousands of genetic perturbations. And on top of that, you can add chemical perturbations. So rather than just trust the cell to process the genetic code, you can change the genetic code and also alter how the genetic code is processed because our chemical library perturbs how RNA becomes proteins. So you kind of have an orthogonal kind of layer of control uh, and, and look at the output and select the best um, cell for synthetic biology. So there that's are really cool. compounding benefits on the foundational platform, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And you know, the, it sounds like the business model, uh, at least here, you know, at, at, in your current state, uh, to some degree will be supported by revenue. So cash flow, you know, from partners will allow you to continue to kind of build that team, you know, build the platform, keep the company moving forward. Um, are you, on the other hand, uh, are you backed by venture capitalists? Are you, are you also aiming to bring in investor capital? And my question around that, if so, what is that investor universe like? Because my experience with raising capital um, is oftentimes, um, you know, there's very specific and discrete sets of investors that care very deeply about a, a very, you know, narrow domain. And so, again, back to this whole, um, you know, dialogue around tech bio and biotech, it sounds like a subtle difference, but oftentimes there could be one investor that says, well, we don't really invest in the machine part of things or, you know, 3D print, we don't understand 3D printer, we don't understand, you know, the, the tech part of tech bio, but we're very focused on, you know, the targets and the genes and, and the therapeutics and then vice versa. You have maybe some more uh, investors that are very familiar with, you know, maybe a med tech path to market or a diagnostic path to market, but, you know, there's, they don't understand that therapeutic side, and so they're often caught in between. And so, I just wonder, well, like, and I think that'll change over time as as this becomes a, you know, uh, more, um, uh, you know, well developed 
area and investment theses. There, it's already happening. I'm sure you're seeing. Yeah. But I just wonder what your experience has been there, and 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 thoughts around the investor universe for um, what what your company and others like you in tech bio are pursuing. Yeah. Um, so. So we are venture back at the moment. So we are focused on revenues as soon as we can get to revenues. But we are venture back at the moment. We we close the seed round in January. They're trying to raise a Series A at the moment. That's kind of where we are. And 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 remarkably, um, my first company I started in 2013, and I'd say just in the past five years, this distinction between a bio and a tech, or a tech bio and biotech, is starting to diminish. So um, so. When I started my first company, even the second company, um, you you had um, I know classic pharma, biopharma, biotech investors or medtech investors who focus exclusively on the devices or exclusively on the assets. Um, so now, again, the last five years that has quite dramatically changed. So many of the classical biopharma investors are starting to be open to computational methods, um, engineering approaches, high throughput approaches. And and it was mostly spurred by the opposite trend where tech investors jump into biology and they're willing to take some biology risks. So I think there's a convergence happening where uh, quite a number of investors are comfortable at this interface. Um, it, it, I mean, I think in the next, I'd say in the next five years, it'll be a lot more established. But the trend is certainly there, and and we are fortunate to to have found some investors and 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 being able to talk to some investors who appreciate that uh, convergence. Interesting times, yeah. And when you talk about kind of corporate partners, would you say that primarily your focus will be you know kind of traditional? large pharma type companies or is that a diverse range of opportunities as well? What yeah, initially again, yeah, one thing I've learned, I mean, um, the, the, the key to building a, a company as a successful company is to picking a focus area initially. You can't do multiple things at the same time. Uh, even if you're building a platform, you need to validate the platform around an application where you can demonstrate revenues and validation and then move to the second application. So our initial application happens to be in drug discovery. So our initial clients or partners will be uh, pharmaceutical companies. Um, we've got a, a second effort kind of in, 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 a, in a low priority fashion ongoing, which is in cell therapies, in, in, in T cells and, and, and immunotherapies. Um, so those will likely also be pharmaceutical companies. Um, because the kind of project that we are taking on in, in the T cell space are, 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 are amenable for CAR T's, uh, T cell selection, uh, patient selections, and so on. So it will it'll all be large pharmaceutical companies in the near term. How do you keep yourself current with everything? I mean, running a company, the field's moving fast. You're working kind of at that interface and convergence. How do you stay current? You know, there's just a lot moving uh, around right now. Yeah, it's it's been amazing what Twitter has done. Twitter and LinkedIn, more than LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, there's a massive biotech presence on Twitter. Um, simply searching for, I don't know, biotech or tech bio um, and, and following people. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that people are willing to share and, 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 and you know, discuss um, the, the intricacies of you know, starting companies, the market analysis, how things are going. So... I'm, I'm on Twitter all the time, and that's where I, I, I keep current on, on technology, on the market, on investments, and so on. If there were one kind of um, 
piece of advice that you might offer the next generation that, you know, listens to our interview today and says, hey, I want to be like Swami. What what piece of advice would you provide that person that maybe is in high school or in college trying to aim toward where they want to ultimately get to? If they wanted to, you know, emulate your pathway, what are some of the, you know, you have one or two pieces of advice for them? Yeah, again, one thing I've realized um, in my entrepreneurial journey is there's so many ups and downs. It's, you probably observed it as well. There's there's more downs than there are ups um, in, in in this path. I mean, uh, as a founder, as a CEO, uh, everything rolls up to you, and oftentimes it's the, all the bad stuff and the stuff that nobody else wants to do gets rolled up to you. Um, so having a firm set of values and purpose on why you're doing this becomes important. Even if it's just you want to make money, that's fine. You need to be firm in it, um, and. Yeah, again, um, having the way I think about it, having a, a set of values informs uh, the type of team that you hire, the type of projects you take on, um, and, and basically helps you navigate the ups and downs um, in a more even-keeled fashion rather than be kind of blown around by the, uh, by, by the vagaries of startup life. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. One of the things that, you know, I've believe, you know, will be a challenge for, you know, uh, bio companies of the future will be just being able to, you know, bring in the talent at the right times to scale the company. So with continued success of any of these ventures, you know, more and more talent is required to continue to grow and scale. Ultimately, the goal of these companies is to bring a new therapeutic or a new diagnostic or tool to the market to help patients. And but, you know, as a company starts and then moves into clinical development and then ultimately gets to the marketplace, if successful, um, talent is can be a barrier to, to continued growth. I wonder what your thoughts are around the opportunity to really bring in, you know, more diverse talent as we think about scaling the, the bio company of the future. And how we, you know, as entrepreneurs, CEOs, founders can aid in, you know, inviting, you know, others, you know, with different backgrounds that perhaps weren't thinking about a biotech as a, as a pathway for them, but could find, you know, that in the, in the new um, version of, uh, as we keep calling it, a tech bio company, there may indeed be, you know, many uh, diverse new roles that would invite different types of individuals with different backgrounds to the field. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's something that I've learned across my companies as well, is being able to talk about what your company stands for, what your company is doing, and, and being public about what you're trying to do. Um, I, I, I did not do it as much as I should have done in my past companies. And again, that's why I'm grateful for the chance to chat about Zafrin's and, and kind of my entrepreneurial journey here, um, my entrepreneurial journey, um, is the, the again, the more people hear about what you're trying to do, um, the more they're inspired, the more they understand that they may be able to contribute and jump on. Um, so that's kind of more of a general answer. 
um, again, being able to talk about you know what your company does, the purpose, the values, and and uh, all the interesting things you do, and getting it to as wide an audience as possible by any mechanism that you can think of, um, I think is critical. And one thing we again started doing more extensively at Safran's is reach out to universities. Um, so we go to the career fairs fairly often, um, and and again just being in those uh, virtual career fairs, we just sit around and whoever wants to talk to us, we talk. Um, and again, the particular strategy I like to employ, so many of the uh, people who join Zafrin's, I've been talking to them for six years sometimes. Um, so even if they're not ready to join your company right now, um, finding the right people and, and just maintaining relationships, um, I found extremely valuable. So many of the people here, I've known them for many years, and earlier was not the right time for them to jump in, but now is the right time for some of, some of the, the folks. So they're, they're on board. Um, so I like talking to people any chance I get. So, um, and, and that's what has worked for me. Um, and again, I'm realizing that you know, with, with, with tools like podcasts and, and LinkedIn articles and so on, um, you can reach a larger audience as well. Yeah, visibility becomes an important tool. You know, I oftentimes think about, you know, raising money, raising visibility is part of the ability to kind of, you know, raise talent. And, you know, there's so much more to it to build a company than just, you know, money or, uh, partners and technology, as as you well know, and you know, it, you've had an amazing journey. And and one question I have for you is, how do you keep it together? How do you uh, you know stay balanced? Maybe balance is the wrong word, but you know, what keeps you you know really into it and passionate about it, so that you just keep going back at it day after day. For me, it's just the magic that happens when you have the right team. So again, like you mentioned, everything we have done so far across my companies and Zafrin's are stuff that we invented. And when things start actually working and you start seeing the benefits of what what is possible and seeing the team take ownership and, and they create their own projects, they drive it. And again, the most, the proudest thing that I, I, I am of all my entrepreneurial journey so far, there's about eight people who've gone on to start their own companies, are the CEOs of companies, CSOs of companies now. And that's just gratifying. So people who come in fresh out of college or very early in the career and going through this grind of interdisciplinary project development management and seeing their confidence grow and they go on and, and kind of uh, make inventions of their own. Um, that That is almost, I mean, that that's the privilege of entrepreneurship is is allowing such broad impact in society. Uh, that's what keeps me going. I mean, uh, I want more smart people to come in and, and go on and do more smart things. Um, so yeah, I like the company to be a place where great people come and do great things. Even not if not at Zafrin's, they go on and do other great things elsewhere. Is is perfectly fine by me. Though I'm pretty sure we're going to do awesome things at Zafrin's too. Um, so that's what keeps me going. I love it. I love it. And, you know, in, in maybe in winding down the conversation, it's really been a lovely conversation. I've enjoyed getting to know you better and, and sharing your story with our, our audience. Um, in closing, I would just kind of ask you kind of a more of a dreamer question. You know, as you look out, you know, over the course of the next 50 years, um, put your, you know, crystal ball on the table and tell me, you know, when I think about your brilliant mind, what what's one of the, you know, m- craziest ideas that you have that you hope would come true over that time frame? It's, it's, it's uh, again, the biggest bottleneck. I mean, anybody who does, who does therapeutics, diagnostics, um, they are kind of mismatched from um, clinical trials are very expensive. That's what I'm trying to say. So try, even if you find a drug that works on mice, on monkeys, on rabbits, um, we can cure 
you know, model animals so many times, but we still hope and pray that it works on patients. So how do we um, figure out which drugs works for which patient and how do we do clinical trials more efficiently? So figuring that part, um, again, a simple way to do that, again, using my particular background, is if you could basically, anytime somebody takes an aspirin or a warfarin or even eats a banana, if you could sequence them and understand these particular chemicals does this to a person. And if you can have that, and um, could you then predict, if I give you a novel chemical, how would this person react? Because you already have a baseline for these compounds do these things, and um, what would a new compound do for this kind of patient profile? Um, so that's a combination of having uh, personalized, uh, decentralized sequencing capabilities, having computational knowledge on how to predict a response for a patient based on known responses for known drugs, and then being able to come up with drugs efficiently and and and, and rapidly. Again, with the um, healthcare bill passing over the weekend or, or last week, um, we need to be able to make compounds inexpensively, which is which is true. I mean, that is a social contract that biotechs have to make uh, with society. Um, we need to figure out how to make compounds inexpensively, but to enable that, we need to be able to figure out how to do clinical trials inexpensively and how to predict which patients would benefit from it inexpensively. So it gets down to, at a personal level, um, can you predict if the drug would work for this patient and how would it affect them? Sure. And that's kind of the dream for everybody in this field and, and, and the tools needed to um, enable that should come up hopefully soon. True personalized medicine. Yeah, and again, just, you know, when what you're describing um, is, you know, when a drug kind of begins its journey back to your story, when you think about um, sequencing and then screening these molecules, that's the first day that a molecule begins its journey toward you know, the marketplace. But the reality is for that molecule to make it all the way, first of all, you know, one, and I don't know what the stats are, but it's a staggering number of failures from initial hit in that screen, you know, all the way to the market, you know, helping uh, affect diseases. And even then, uh, it's not personalized. It's still using kind of a broad-based clinical trial approach to figure out how that drug might, uh, you know, act in a patient, you know, both from a safety and an efficacy perspective. We're getting closer to personalized medicine, and there's different examples of how that's, you know, starting to kick into gear again, you know, um, several decades after the mapping of the human genome, we're now starting to, you know, see the fruits of, of, of that work and much more to come with new tools like the ones you're, you're describing. But once you get that product, you know, through preclinical development into human clinical studies, the failure rate is still extraordinarily high. It takes, you know, a number of years, you know, to get through um, those clinical trials. And that's really where the expense uh, kicks in. And finding a way to do this more, you know, cost-effectively and improve precision and better outcomes for patients. Yeah, I mean, I, I share your dream. Yeah, well, let's make it happen. So <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my part, you can do your part with your ecosystem there. All right, let's John, do it. <laughs> well, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks again, Swami. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 